0: Okay, this morning I want to just start taking up some of the themes I began with yesterday. Uh, This is going to kind of get heavy, but that's why you're here. It's not all fun and entertainment. It's not all Adam's moments of wonder. If you've never had an Adam's moment of wonder, you will experience that at some time this afternoon. Um, We are here as well to kind of delve into some of the theoretical ideas that lie behind wake and paro-theology. And yesterday's talk if you notice, was titled God of this World. And you may have been going, I didn't hear that phrase once in the whole talk. Why was it called God of this World? Because I never got there. I never got to that point. Uh, So that's where I want to kind of get to today. Um, What what I was exploring yesterday, and this will hopefully connect a little bit with uh, some of the stuff Alex was looking at uh, with the Trump lecture. Um, What I was looking at is that there is a constitutive failure uh, at the heart of life. Now, that's, the, that's I'd like my showing you the, the answer, my, like my answer without showing you my working out. So you can't kind of agree with me or disagree with me just with me saying that. So I want to flesh it out a little bit more, but what the argument was is we experience loss in our lives, we experience doubt. we experience guilt, we experience meaninglessness. And our general feeling is that when we experience meaninglessness, uh, there is meaning that we have lost. When we experience guilt, we feel that we have fallen from somewhere. So guilt basically is just a word for not living up to some, some idea of what you should live up to. And not even an idea, that's not even a good word. Just, you just sense that you are not who you should be. You know, and, you know very concretely, you might not give money to a friend uh, who needs it. Or you might not go round to their house whenever they're in a difficult period of their life. And you feel guilt that is kind of going oh I could have done that I could have been a better person right I could have, I could have gone around and seen him so you have this notion so it's an existential term it's not it's it's a very simple existential term. you have a notion of what it what it means to be human and you've somehow failed to, to kind of to reach that um, And uh, also you know if you if you have a sense of doubt, you have then lost a sense of meaning. So all of these ideas of loss uh, have this, prerequisite understanding that there is something you have lost. You've lost meaning, you've lost knowledge, you've lost something is, is gone. But what I was talking about yesterday is the psychoanalytic idea that there is actually an original loss to life that, that doesn't have a fullness before it. That there is, a, there is a constitutive sense of loss that's connected with human subjectivity and that we can never fill that lack. And everywhere we turn, in sacred and secular ways, people are promising that they can fill that lack. They can give us what we have lost. But that there's something that that's always going to be a frustrating thing. So we we move from your experience of loss to this idea that existentially we all experience it together to that notion that it is built into the heart of reality itself, Okay? just to kind of like, you know, many of you have followed my work, you'll, you'll know what I'm about to say, so I'll just cover it quickly. But from my book, Insurrection On, um, there is this, I try to isolate what this fundamental loss is. And so in psychoanalysis, the finding creation myth is that when you're born, there is no you, right? There is a collection of experiences and feelings in your body. And subjectivity kind of starts to arise around the age of three months to 16 months. So this, this is called the mirror phase. This is where an infant begins to have a center of their self. I begin to see myself as an I, right? And the notion is that before this, there is no you, or your mother, your primary caregiver, there's a sense in which you are one with everything and everything is one with you. Not in some mystical new age way, just in the sense that there, there might be explosions of uh, feelings in your body, but they're not ne- kind of like brought together in a subject. They're feelings, but they haven't been kind of pulled together in Peter. And at the mirror phase, what begins to happen is I begin to have a sense of an inner world. And as I get a sense of an inner world, I have a sense of an outer world. There is no inner world without an outer world. There is no I without a not I. So constitutive to subjectivity is an experience of loss. Because as soon as I come into being, I feel that I'm separate from something. But the trick is I am not separate from anything because I am created in the separation itself. (laughs) So it's like, it's not you have lost something, you are the product of the loss itself, which means you can never get back what you feel you've lost, except death in a sense, because if you ever had that wholeness with everything, that wholeness, your subjectivity wouldn't exist. So in this kind of creation story of psychoanalysis, humans are marked by a constitutive sense of loss. And then what happens is the infant begins to try to find a way of getting back what was lost in all sorts of ways. This is called the name of the father. right? The technical term for it is the name of the father, which is really the process of uh, that which gets in the way of the relationship between the primary caregiver and the infant. Right? What, the weaning process, where the child begins to differentiate, becomes a subject, becomes a self. So the name of the father can be anybody, it's not the father, that's why it's called the name of the father. It can be the mother who is saying to the child, you know, you've got you've to go out there and, and live your life. You know? But there's this traumatic experience of separating, and if you don't separate, it's even more traumatic. Right? The, tr- the trauma of psychosis, which is the failure of the separation with the primary caregiver. So what the child does then is in the, technically the name of the father is this sense where you go, you can't have your mother, right? You can't have this incestuous relationship with your mother, but you can satisfy yourself with other things. Go play with toys, you know, hang out with your brother, you know, hang out with your sister, you know, you take, get other interests, but none of these things completely work. So the child moves around from thing to thing, toy to toy, all of this. And it's this cont- con- continual movement between things that generates what's called jouissance, which is a, a, a different, a type of pleasure, a type of what's called enjoyment, a type of enjoyment. Um, and so, think about it like a kid at Christmas. The kid at Christmas is wanting a present, and they're thinking about Christmas, and they're thinking about the presents, and. Uh, this can be called pleasure. Pleasure is getting what you want, right? The pleasure of having a nice cup of coffee, whatever it is that you want, and there's pleasure in your football team winning a game, whatever. But enjoyment is the pleasure you get from not getting what you want. Enjoyment is, the, is this weird kind of pleasure that you get from the failure to get the, your football team winning. And so it's like the kid at Christmas, they, they seem frustrated, uh, they, they're unhappy because they're like, I can't wait to Christmas. I can't wait to open my presents. I can't wait to open my presents. And they're, they're frustrated and they're up at night and they're wetting themselves and they're doing whatever it is that kids do. Um, but you can tell they're enjoying it, right? There's an enjoyment in that. Right? Uh, you know, my sister, when we got Easter eggs, she would, I would eat the Easter eggs straight away, right? So I was all about pleasure. I want to eat the Easter eggs straight away. But she would take a nibble and then she'd put the rest in the fridge and then she'd leave it. And then she'd come back the next day and take another level, and you could tell she was enjoying not having the chocolate. Right? She was enjoying the fact that I was frustrated and annoyed and angry, and you know she was enjoying the kind of this. She was drawing out this foreplay and sex. You know, sex is pleasure, foreplay is enjoyment. You know, in um, drawing out the not having. Whereas it's like the, you know, the, the old marshmallow game where there's kids who'll just eat one marshmallow instead of waiting. If they wait for the rest, to the end of the day, they'll get two. And some kids, by the time you've explained the game, they've already eaten their one marshmallow, right? It's the pleasure. But the child is thinking about the, the present under the Christmas tree. And then, of course, there's momentary pleasure. They open up the, the present and they get their Xbox or whatever. They're momentarily happy. But so much of the enjoyment was in the not having. That's actually a more substantial. It's even holidays, that's why you should book holidays well in advance, because you get the enjoyment of not having the holiday. The most boring bit is the holiday. You know, I could just cancel wake and just you know at the last minute and you get all the enjoyment of thinking you're gonna be there and none of the disappointment of what it's actually like, right? That's the problem. it's a disappointment of opening present. Cause what is it you want? Whenever you come to wake, what is it you want? What is it the child wants in the the the, the box? The mother's breast. That's why you're here. <laughs> you, you want the mother's breast. That's why I'm here. You, well, you're like, I don't look like your mother's breast, right? There's disappointment, right? So what does that mean? That <laughs> <laughs> in, in a very weird sense, because like symbolically, you know, the mother's breast symbolizing the oneness with the maternal figure. You are at the mother's breast. So the child is not wanting the Xbox or the iPhone. When they open the box, that's what they want. But of course, if they got it, it would be traumatic. Um, So this is the Oedipal story, of course. The Oedipal story, very simple story. A young guy wants to sleep with his mother. So that's the maternal return to oceanic oneness, wholeness and completeness. Uh, uh, The father is a symbol of what gets in the way, a prohibition that gets in the way. Oedipus breaks through the prohibition, gets this oneness and wholeness, this return to oceanic oneness, you think it's going to be a blessing but it's a curse. It's a disaster, right? That's that's the trick. That's the you've heard me say. But the Freudian answer to fulfil your dreams, which is absolutely fulfil your dreams, so that you're horrified by the results. You know, fulfil your dreams so that you can realise how ridiculous your dreams really are. So there's there's your inspirational uh, Facebook post with little flowers, right? You'll never get your mother's breast, basically. <laughs> um, now, what's interesting to me about that is, of course, of course. The Judeo Christian tradition starts with an eatable story. Very simple. The very core of, the, of our religious tradition starts with a very fundamental eatable story. Adam and Eve walking around the garden, the, a fruit tree, right? Not even an Xbox or anything like that, it goes to the fruit tree, right? A prohibition. You can't eat of that, that tree. They break through the prohibition thinking it's going to be a blessing that they will be like God. In other words, they'll lack the lack, right? What does to be like God mean? Well, in religious terms, it's to lack the lack. God does not have the constitutive lack that we have. They break through to get it, and it's not a blessing, it's a curse. Right, so this is the theological dimension of power. The theology: is that the very tradition starts with this fundamental problem of you're depressed if you don't get what you want and you're depressed if you do, right? That's what Schopenhauer said. we oscillate between uh, boredom and suffering, the human condition. So thanks very much, appreciate it. So there's the, uh, you can call these the difference between depression and melancholy. Depression is the sadness of not getting what you want and melancholy is the sadness of getting what you want, right? Um, Again, this, this was the theme of last year. So, any of you who were here at Wake last year, you know, we went into this in a lot of detail, and I do i don't want to get bogged down in that. But um, there is this this interesting eatable story that we want to fix this constitutive ho- lack, and religion, or uh, eating kale, or doing CrossFit, whatever it is, will fill will fill that lack. Now. The reason why I'm telling you this is because I want, I want to answer an objection that people have to parotheology. And I want to answer it not because you have it necessarily, but because it will help explain um, a little bit about what this project is about and what WAKE is about. Um, the objection is, well, parotheology seems to be obsessed with breaking you free from utopic thinking. From thinking of some sort of utopia in relationships, in political, cultural, or religious terms, it seems to want to kind of give up all of that type of thinking and embrace kind of brokenness and lack and trauma, which means like, do you not like are are people not inspired by utopias? You know, if I get up here and I do a Tony Robbins thing and say your life can be wonderful and brilliant and all of that. You know, is that not, does that not inspire people? Like, so when you, whenever you're freed from this type of thinking, are you not stealing hope from people, the possibility that your lives can be better? That what I'm trying to build from yesterday and into today and into tomorrow is the idea that actually, and this is one of the insights of psychoanalysis, is that utopic thinking has built into it um, a resistance to change a resistance to getting the very thing that you want. Okay, so, and actually, being freed from a type of, there's something out there that will make you whole and complete, that will fix you, whether it's a relationship, a political party, this or that, being freed from that is actually part of what it means to have a healthier community where real change is possible. So the response to the objection is, it's actually utopic thinking that is the problem. And it's freeing yourself from utopic thinking that can open up the real possibility of change and transformation, which is incredibly difficult to do. It's very, very difficult to do. So I want to explain it in, in relation to the movie that I've been working on. And some of you know this. Some of you have supported this as well. We just shot it. Um, this movie called Making Love. Did I talk about that phrase yesterday? So the phrase making love, uh, it was never originally about two people having sex. Uh, Two people didn't make love. You needed a third person to make love. A third individual was the one who made love. And of course, the, the obvious example is the chaperone. Whenever two people went on a date, they would bring a chaperone. And today we think the role of the chaperone is to prevent two people from doing anything untoward but actually the role of the chaperone traditionally was to get the two people to start fantasizing about what they could do if only the chaperone wasn't there to stop it, right? So the chaperone was making love. The chaperone as the obstacle to the two people was actually generating love. And this is why, you know, like purity rings are like a technology uh, for making love, right? They're a technology for teenagers to have sex because by wearing the purity ring, it generates an excessive desire for what sex is, makes it really exciting. My goodness, I can't have sex. Which, of course, makes you want to have sex, which makes it fun, right? So it's a very good thing. In somewhere like L.A., purity rings are an important thing because in L.A., where everything's permissible, everything's boring, right? A bit of prohibition, and uh, really gets things, things going. <laughs> so the original notion of making love, it's originally called the gallows, um, is two people uh, in Belfast, have had a previous affair. But the affair has been cut short because the woman's husband discovers it. Woman's husband is a big paramilitary guy. The, uh, the guy is a sniper from the US, ex-Marines. This actually happened, this would happen like The the IRA would employ snipers to come to here to kind of like, you know, do assassinations. Didn't happen all the time, but that was something that happened. So that's part of the backstory. So this American comes over, Uh, uh, in the days of the Troubles uh, to do an assassination attempt. And he falls in love with this woman. Uh, The woman is married to this paramilitary leader. The affair is found out. The paramilitary guy says, you ever see my wife again, you're dead. You walk away, you never come back. He goes. Uh, This ex-marine, he becomes a playwright. And he writes a play called The Gallows, And actually, the play, and it's in the movie, the play is about Dostoevsky uh, in prison. So Dostoevsky was arrested and put in prison uh, for being part of this kind of incendiary group and and being a dissident writer. But as you may know, uh, it was a mock execution. Uh, After being in prison for a while, he was brought out, tied to a stake with some others. The guns were raised. uh, And then just at the last moment... Uh, a pardon was read by the Tsar, and he was let go. So the actual play is about Dostoevsky and the prisoner beside Dostoevsky's cell. And what happens is this prisoner beside Dostoevsky, he sees everything that happens, and he's looking out the cell, and he sees that, oh, it's a mock execution. Well, at first he's elated. He's like, brilliant, right? If he is spared, I might be spared as well. So he gets this new lease of life, But then he starts to wonder, will I live or will I die? And he enters into this space of profound ambiguity. Nobody will tell him anything. The prison guards just mock him. They won't let him know. Like nobody knows whether he'll live or die. Eventually, he gets so caught up in this that he kills himself. He hangs himself in his cell. It's called the gallows. So that's the play he's written. He's come back to Belfast to show the play. This is, uh, you know, it's his last showing. And, of course, he is the prisoner in the gallows because he's coming back because he goes, does this woman love me or not? Does she really love me or does she not? I cannot stand the unknowing. I'd prefer knowing that she didn't love me and try to move on or she did love me and we can try to be together. But this unknowing is killing him. Anyway, that's the backstory. Comes back to Belfast and he goes to this hotel, the merchant hotel, that's based around that, um, to see her one last time. Well, the husband is there waiting for him, and he seems to know that he will be. And the husband's saying, oh, so you've come back. Now, I heard about your play. And I told you what would happen if you ever returned. And he says, listen, I'll tell you what. Right, you want me to step aside? You want me to step aside, let you go in there and talk to her after all these years? He says, okay. He takes out some money, puts it in the guy's pocket. He says, go buy her a drink. Tell her about your little play. I'll give you a couple hours. At midnight, my guys will be outside. We'll take you to the airport, and you leave, and you never come back. And don't fuck her, basically. <laughs> so he goes in to the hotel, and the film is about what happens in those couple of hours, right? Now, here's the inter- the thing. What is it? This is a, the- a theological erotic thriller, right? Which is one of your favorite genres, <laughs> I'm sure. To- there's a lot to choose from. There's uh, a pig in the city. There's a uh, breakdance to electric boogaloo. There's a, there's a lot of uh, theological erotic thrillers out there, so I'm hoping that this will uh, get to the top of that genre. <laughs> um, yeah. What's that? That's Barnes and Noble section. Barnes and Noble, yeah, there's a big Barnes and Noble section for erotic theological thrillers. There is that one woman who writes the, uh, the vampire novels. She's a religious person. What's that? Who? Rice, and Rice, Anne Rice. I think she's, she's, she's my only competition. <laughs> um, and actually, it looks a bit like a vampire movie. Uh, well, we shot, actually. But um, uh, these two people have had a previous affair. Now, here's the thing. The affair was never really consummated, right? They never, they, and it's a contingent thing. So contingently, they meet, and potentially, they do love each other, and they desire each other. That's, that's probably true. But here's what happens. Uh... The, the husband is this barrier that prevents them from ever really having a relationship. So there's a constitutive failure built into their relationship, right? There's a constant failure for them, to, for them to be together. What that does is that constant repetition of a failure starts to generate a fantasy of what the relationship could be like. So the failure to have the relationship begins to generate a fantasy of what it would be like if only we could be together, if only the husband wasn't there. Then this virtual reality, this fantasy, becomes more real than reality. Right? This fantasy almost becomes... It, it, this, nothing, this thing that doesn't exist, that's never existed, is more real than the reality of their constantly failed relationship. So now they are enslaved by this fantasy of wholeness and completeness and oneness. If only we could be together, it would be all perfect and wonderful. If only your husband didn't exist. It's like that parable of the bird that never flies. She never flies because she imagines that wind, with all its resistances and pulls, will just slow her down. Gravity will just pull her to the earth. But she doesn't realise that it is the wind, with all its resistances and pulls, that will allow her to fly in the first place. So, there is, you know, this husband, he's the, he's, the, he's the obstacle. They're going like, oh, we want to be together. And what happens is we see this. We see this incredible passion between the two. And what we think, right, is that they want to be together. They want to be together. He's backed from Belize. He's willing to die for her. She's willing to to let him die for her. This is called amour courtois, if you know it, the, the French form of love that was really poeticized in the Middle Ages, where you would have a lady who was married to a nobleman. And then you would have a knight. And the knight would never be able to be with the lady because she was with a nobleman. But the knight would dedicate his life to the lady. And they would rarely sleep together, if ever. The idea is that he would fight dragons and do all of that kind of stuff for this lady who was inaccessible. And the obstacle was the nobleman. And the love between the knight and the lady was seen as this incredibly pure form of love. Pure in a very technical sense. Pure isn't non-existent. <laughs> it's a, a, a pure fiction, a fantasy that created a phenomenal depth in the life of the knight and a phenomenal depth in the life of the lady. So the woman feels this experience of being worthy to to for someone who will give their lives to die for her. Not even like not for sex no not even for caressing not even for foreplay no just for a glance even that, that, that was the kind of that was the, the aim of a Courtois how little could you give for how much so the ultimate fantasy is just for a glance just an eye contact for a second would you destroy yourself right this is the femme fatale the fatal female very French kind of notion, which is, you know, suicide by woman, basically. Um, um, and so this is playing with that theme, right? What you begin to realize is, these people aren't hating this. They're loving it. Now, what happens, I don't want to tell you everything and because then you won't want to watch it, but I want to tell you a little bit more, is what happens is they realize that there is something much more dangerous than a man with a gun. And there's something much more terrifying than a husband who will slit this guy's throat with a knife. And what's that? It's a normal relationship. That's what they're really terrified of. They would prefer to live out this and to die than for, for them to have to work out what it means to have a real relationship where you have to argue about the laundry and uh, you know who's gonna change the nappy and all of that. You know, like Hollywood films where the romance always finishes at the end when the couple kiss, not six months later when they're arguing about who's going to pick up the kids at school, right? <laughs> you know, it's, it has to end at the, the point of the, the, what's called the objective desire. Now, you've heard me speak about this before. For, for Lacan, he says desire has two elements. There's the objective desire, which is what you want, and there's the object cause of desire, which what, is what makes you want it. And the object cause of desire is the obstacle. So you want a house, that's the object of desire, but the object cause of desire is actually you like looking around other people's houses and you like looking online at places and you like comparing prices. And that's actually the obstacle, because those are the very things that are stopping you from getting the thing that you want. But it's actually what's generating the desire, so eventually you get the house. So you get the object of desire, but you lose the object cause of desire. So now you no longer desire what you desire. That's melancholy, right? So what happens is basically what they find out is there's nobody. There's nobody stopping them from being together. So the husband is the symbol of God and Christ, uh, or the husband, uh, the father in the eatable complex. Um, uh, and, and yeah, okay. I'll say one more thing about the eatable thing. The superego is the voice that's always telling you you have to do X, Y, or Z in order to be whole and complete. So, the superego, in a sense, is this inner outer voice that's always feeding the desire for the fantasy. You just got to do this, you got to do this, you got to do this, and then it'll be great. And we try to obey the superego injunction. You know, like you're not having enough sex, you're not having enough fun. You should be out on Friday night, you shouldn't be in watching Netflix. That kind of like, if you're, if, if there's a neurosis and you like that voice that you hear, that's like, oh, that's you know, And you go like, oh yeah, I have to obey that. But the more you try to obey it, the worse it is. It, that's the theological term for that is just the serpent, the accuser, because that's in the, in the uh, eatable story in Judaism. The serpent is the one that's saying, you eat the fruit, you will be like God. You will lack the lack. And we think that we need to obey that voice. Right, that if we obey that voice, things will be good. But theological tradition says, no, it's actually exorcising that voice is what we need to do. not obey that voice. Right. So a satanic community is any community that offers wholeness and completeness, right? Yeah. So, um, yeah. But um, oh yeah, so what, what this couple discover is because right, there's this whole fact, like he's walking towards the hotel, and there's this car following him right, this outie, this black outie. And he's, he's walking around, he's paranoid, and you're seeing everything from his perspective. Everything seems threatening, right? And then you discover, oh, the guy in the outie is just walking his dog, right? And then you think the husband is out to get him. And you, you find out the husband has just gone to bed, right? And they realize there's nothing stopping them, so now they can be together. So now is the moment of greatest success, they can be together. There's nothing. To they can run away. They can be together, and they just stop. And they're like, "Oh my God, this is horrific." We much more enjoy the fantasy of the amour courtois. We much more enjoy the fantasy of the femme fatale of the noir type of thing. Whoa, well We 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 have to think about actually a real relationship. I don't know if I'm ready for that. And this is kind of what we're exploring in in the movie. So. And like in any movie, like, you know, I talked about annihilation yesterday and you go like, well, where, where is the annihilation? Well, the annihilation is the self-destructive drive of the four scientists. The self-destructive drive is hard baked into our DNA. Um, you know, you go like, of course, annihilation isn't about the alien. It's the same with like Arrival. If you've watched Arrival, what's, what's the arrival? Have you seen Arrival? It's not the alien. It's the child, the arrival of the child. Right. That's what it's about. And so making love is, of course, you go going like, who's making love? oh, it's not the two people, it's the husband. The husband's making love. So what happens when you remove the husband? This is simply a theological reflection of parotheology, which is the idea that through the constitutive failure of being human, that kind of like that moment, which is then repeated in contingent ways in our lives and all of the failures that we experience in our lives, right? They're kind of like, they're like secondary examples of this constitutive failure. Um, And Paul Tillich, by the way, he says a psychoanalyst primarily is involved with the contingent traumas and failures in your life. So why do you go to a psychoanalyst? Because something has gone wrong in your life concretely. So a psychoanalyst primarily deals with the ontic contingent traumas that happen to you in life. But over time, they connect you, a proper psychoanalyst uh, connects you with the idea that there is a trauma inherent to life itself that you need to tarry with. That's what the psychoanalyst is attempting to do, right? For Tillich, the priest deals with the ontological lack an antagonism of life. So they start with the idea that there's a fundamental uh, trauma to existence, and then they often link it to the contingent problems that we have politically and culturally and individually in our lives. So they're kind of similar in some ways, but coming from different angles, right? So parotheology as a theological project is about attempting to uh, bring this constituent of to the surface and expose the fantasy. This is why I call the talk the God of this world. What is the God of this world? The God of this world is the fantasy of a wholeness and completeness that can fill the, um, the, the antagonisms of existence. That's what the God of this world is. And there's, I mean, I, go, I live in L.A. because it's the most religious place in the world. Every corner has a priest and a prophet promising wholeness and completeness. If only you, you know, say, do CrossFit or something like that, or have enough money or look the right way. And it's, it's everywhere. And then, you, then what you have is the fantasy of what's called a non-castrated other, which is you start to fantasize that there's someone out there who has the wholeness and completeness that you don't have. So you're walking around and you're seeing all these people who look great and are wonderful, and you, you kind of can't help but fantasize that they have the, the thing that you're lacking. And we hate them for it. I mean, this is what those Hollywood movies are premised on, right? Like, who, who, who are the sad people in movies? You know, the heroes. The hero is the one who lacks and is unhappy and is a trauma Batman. Obviously, his, his parents have been killed and all of that. And then who are the people who are having excessive jouissance? The the ones who have everything. It's the baddies, right? The baddies. And the Joker literally has a smile etched in his face. He has jouissance dripping out of his every pore. And the baddies in movies, if you watch like Mission Impossible and stuff, what are they doing? They're, say, robbing a bank. But it costs a lot of money to rob a bank, right? You watch this and you go, they've got all these tech guys, they've got like all this IT stuff. IT people of that level are expensive, right? And all these incredible computers and cars. And you go like, well, why are they robbing the bank? They're obviously loaded. Like they've always got hundreds of millions, you know? Like, I say. So it's always a problem of going like, how, what's the motivation for the criminal to rob this bank? But they have, because they have to be seen as having the excessive pleasure. And then the enjoyment of the movie is seeing the body. Get, you know take their enjoyment away from them. So um, you see this 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 fantasy of the non. It's the whole thing. If you break up with someone and you're depressed and you're in your house and you've got your tin foil hat on collecting urine and bottles and you're <laughs> fantasizing that the other person is having a blast. The right party and having a brilliant time putting stuff on Facebook and all of that. And and sometimes that's true. I hadn't actually did that. <laughs> like, damn, right? I was collecting urine and bottles and she was having a good time. But, but you know, but how good a time? I don't know. The more they show a good time on Facebook, obviously the less a good time you're having. Because if you're having a good time, the last thing you're thinking about is putting it on Facebook. Um, <clears throat> uh, we, we have to, you know, we're, we have to cover over the lack. and that with the, Covering over the lack, there's a, there's a, obviously a social media term for that and it's Instagram. <laughs> it's, it's a constant kind of putting out the kind of perfect image of our lives. Not to fool you, but to fool ourselves. I don't want to fool myself. Um, so what happens, the constitutive failure generates a fantasy of wholeness and completeness. That's what I mean by idolatry. Technically that's, that's the term, that's what I think the most technical term for idolatry can be. Idolatry is the notion of something, some big other that that will fill, make whole and complete. And idolatry has a connection with ideology. Ideology is similar. Remember uh, I talked about yesterday, ideology is a system of thinking that covers over the inherent antagonisms of life. And the, the issue with this is that we don't actually want to fulfill the fantasy that we've got. That's the key. The bigger the utopic fantasy, the less, in a sense, unconsciously you want it. Why? Because when you get it, you realize that it will be an absolute failure. From when you're young, you realize that every object is not the object, right? You learn that everything that you get that you think is going to make you whole and complete doesn't work. And so what happens is we sometimes, weirdly, and this is this is important, actually, what Alex was talking about yesterday um, from a psychoanalytic perspective, the, um, what was I going to say, the failure, yes the, oh yeah, you're, you're, the fantasy grows bigger and bigger and bigger of, of, uh, of, of what, you know, make America great again or whatever but, but what, this fantasy of this wholeness and completeness, and if you got it, it's just going to not work, so what happens is we start to invest, and that, oh yeah, I was saying about how why are we involved in, say, churches that are oppressive to us, or political systems that seem to be oppressive to us, precisely because they are Just like the the gambler who isn't addicted to winning, but addicted to losing. They're addicted to losing because the more they lose, the more the fantasy of winning becomes stronger and stronger and stronger. You give the odd win, but then the fantasy of the win becomes massive. Um, I uh, uh, went to a psychoanalyst uh, many years ago now, and I was talking about um, a relationship that I'd had. And um, I described it as a heroin relationship, right? Heroin relationship it was like the high, you know, not, not a good relationship, but the highs were so high. I was addicted to the highs. And the analyst, she was a Lacanian, and so she said, they don't say very much. But there was a, and by, you know, they get paid for saying nothing, um, three days a week. Uh, but, uh, the, but so one of the few things she said, but it was at the right moment, it was a good intervention, when she said, you're addicted to the highs. Maybe you're addicted to the lows. And it was just the right moment where I was like, oh. See, what I was thinking was I was addicted to the highs of the, of the relationship. But actually, I was addicted to lose because the more it didn't work, the more the fantasy of it working grew and became so amazing and all-encompassing that it covered over all of the other flaws and problems in my life. And it became something amazing. And I realized that, oh, I have to have constant obstacles in order to make sure it's never fulfilled. Because if it was ever fulfilled, it would be probably a disaster. You know, it probably wouldn't work. That's why, you know, you see in movies, it's a, it's a very common motif, where two people, like, uh, I don't know, in X-Files, they're, 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 they fancy each other, there's a sexual tension, but there's always something in the way right? It's a case. It's a murder case. It's a, well, this or that, aliens. There's always something that gets in the way, or Jurassic Park is monsters, or whatever. There's something that is stopping the unity from happening. And then, and then the moments that they're about to kiss, the couple you've been waiting for for ages, the moment they're about to kiss, again, somebody just walks in and stops it. The perfect example of this is that beautiful, what's that old film called? I used to talk about it, um, A Brief Encounter. No, a brief of, Is that a brief encounter about two people who meet on a railway station platform. Uh, this, this woman gets some dust in her eye, and he helps remove the dust. And then they start this affair, but she's married, so they can't be together. And every time they try to be together, it just doesn't work, until finally he says, listen, I've got a friend who's got an apartment just round the corner. He's away for the weekend. Come back to the apartment, and they'll finally have sex. All right. So she comes to the apartment, and just as they're there together, where now there's no obstacle, there's nothing they can be together, the explosion of the real. The husband walks in. Or, not the husband, sorry, 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 the guy who owns the apartment walks in. Bam. And again, it's frustrated. But at this point, they begin to realize that actually they'll always find a way. To have an obstacle, so basically the guy coming back is their psychic desire manifested in a cinematic form, right? So it's it's that's what that's what this is. Whenever the two people are about to kiss, and then that stupid bumbling friend walks in, that is this that cinematic representation of a psychic block. You know that the, the attempt to make sure it never happens to continue to have the powerful fantasy. That's why if we are psychically invested in a utopia that we think is going to fix everything, there is this unconscious, self-destructive drive that tries to prevent us from getting it. But weirdly, if we are able to, and I talked about this yesterday, embrace the lack and create a social network, a social bond, not based on excess but based on lack, as you face those constitutive issues... You, the fantasy begins to weaken and you actually can make concrete changes and actually start to improve your life. So that couple, when they walk out of the hotel and they realise there's nothing stopping them, they have this moment where they go, okay, can we actually break the fantasy and take the, re- and take the reality? I've got to finish finish up, I've got a few more minutes, so I'm just gonna finish with the theological dimension of this and then as I say, I'm gonna I'm gonna do a lot more the day after tomorrow, so you've plenty of time for questions and all of that. But this in a sense I think is the is the the meaning of the crucifixion. Right? Is the crucifixion is a recreation of the eatable dilemma. Right? The the Temple of Jerusalem is You've got the court of Gentiles. Everyone's walking around. Just think of Adam and Eve. Think of Oedipus, right? Then you have the Holy of Holies, You know which is behind this massive curtain. So the Holy of Holies, which is the fruit tree, which is the mother symbolically in the Oedipus complex. And then you have the massive curtain. What is the curtain? The curtain is the prohibition, right? So you have this recreation of the Oedipal structure. And then, of course, the central event testified to in Christianity is We can't get into the significance of this, but the the cry of Christ on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which is, in metaphysics, what's that? It's the constitutive uh, antagonism that exists within reality itself. Christ is God, experiencing a separation from God, right? At that very moment, what happens? The temple curtain rips. What is the temple curtain? It is the prohibition that separates you from the holy of holies. What's gonna happen now? This is the failure of success. Is the, now you're not separated from the sacred other, the object that will satisfy you, make you whole and complete. But weirdly, the very ripping of the curtain is the realization that there's nothing behind it. It's the curtain that generates the fantasy of what's behind it. Because this is exactly the same as a magician's thing, right? That's why I wrote the book The Divine Magician, where you've got the audience... You have the magician on stage, they put, the, uh, you know, they put the coin behind the curtain, they rip the curtain away, you think it's going to be there and there's nothing there. This is a nihilistic moment of Christianity, which is the experience of the loss. You know, you get, you, the, there is no thing out there that will make you whole and complete. But of course, the third part of the magic trick is the prestige, it's the return of the object which is usually a different object, you know, it's not the same dove that you thought disappeared. That dove is dead, right? Um, <laughs> yeah. <and> it's crushed. <laughs> uh, so the, the, it's that in this failure of getting what you want, of thinking there's something to make you all and complete, then you embrace the lack. You, you, you embrace the doubt, the unknowing, all of that. And weirdly, in that experience of failure, you find success you find that there is an affirmation of life, there is an enjoyment of existence, there is something, a different form of life erupts. That's the apocalyptic moment of, of Christianity, which is the destruction of a fantasy. So it's the destruction of something that doesn't exist, weirdly. so It is the destruction of a form of desire and being in the world in which we are obsessed with something that will make us whole and complete, and paradoxically, also unconsciously, always failing to get it. Self-sabotaging ourselves, destroying ourselves, etc., etc. So as get into a different way of being, where we embrace antagonisms and the difficulties of life in a community together, a social bond, embracing that lack, and in that embrace of the lack, we find actually a way to concretely improve our lives, improve our society, improve our communities through the. The, uh, what's called traversing the fantasy, the destruction of the phantasmic object. And the problem with, say, a prosperity church is that it's, its success is exactly in its failure. You go, as I said yesterday, you go and it tells you you can be rich, you can be whole and complete, but because it never works for you, you're, you're indebted to it. You're like, oh, this fantasy is amazing. If it ever did make you rich, you'd realize that being rich isn't that great. It's not that great. I would hang around a lot of rich people in LA. It's not great. It's, it's very depressing. Um, I mean, you get I say you get a better shower. Uh, I, 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 I lived in a house that somebody lent me for. Uh, who was very rich, so I was living for like three years in this house. It was probably worth about like, 10 million, and um, it had really nice showers. I love <laughs> double-headed showers, walking showers, and it was always the right temperature. So there's definitely <laughs> lovely things about it, but uh, that was about it. It didn't fill a lack in my life. <laughs> um, uh, why was I saying that? <laughs> oh, here's a good example of this by the way. People say to me, Pete, you'd be a good speaker if only you didn't keep forgetting where you were and you'd slow down a bit and you'd kind of like actually kind of like be systematic. I go, no, if I stopped being those things it would be a shit talk. At least with those things you have a fantasy that I could be a good speaker if only I didn't do those things. Right? It is the constitutive failure that generates the fantasy of an amazing talk. That's what brings you back, you're going like, next year he's going to crack it, honestly. Next year the guy's actually going to be good. That's the whole thing about what Adam does. That's the real reason why I employ him, because he's rubbish. And every time you're like, oh, someday he's actually going to be good, I can see it. No, he wouldn't be. You take away the craziness and he'd just be boring. Five minutes. Five minutes, yes. (laughs) Um, uh, But what was I saying? Prosperity, thank you. Someone was listening, you get the hymn book. Um, yeah. So you're, you're, it's the very failure to get that makes it. So in other words, the, more, the less we can look at the constitutive failures in our individual lives, in our family lives, and in our communities, the more we will be susceptible to anyone who comes along and gives us a fantasy that things can be perfect and whole. And of course, the ultimate way of doing that is through scapegoating, which is always putting the lack onto somebody else. So you blame someone else, you go like, we can, we can have this. The, more, the less you can embrace that failure, the more you're susceptible to people who promise you the world. And the whole point of paratheology and wake is how do we protect ourselves from those fantasies? How do we create a healthy community? And the healthy community, in a sense, is the one which goes, no, hold on a second, there is brokenness and difficulty. I mean, imagine, imagine we just heard each other's stories right now. God. I, 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 was, I look out my window. I live in LA. I'm overlooking like a whole pile, like an industrial estate. It's not the best place in LA. Right? Um, but I'm watching all these people work. Uh, you know, they're knocking down a building and they're reconstructing it. Hundreds of people. Hundreds of people all working really hard. I just look there and go like, how do they get out of bed? Like, there's people here who've got divorces. There's people there who are dying. There's people there who have had loved ones who have died. There's people who are there who have done horrific things and have had horrific things done to them. And how do they come to work? How do we get here? How do we do this? It's it's incredible. Baffles me. But we're able to. We repress and we get on with life because we have to and all of that. But we need spaces in our lives. You know, deserts in the oasis of life where we can be honest about those ghosts and those pains and those, the brokenness. Because you've heard me say it before, but we're all haunted. A ghost is a presence of an absence. It is the presence of something gone. So things that we've put out of our minds, the people we've loved and lost, the people we've hurt, the people who have hurt us, all of that, they remain present in our lives. They, we push them down, we repress, but they damage us. They come out in acts of aggression, bad backs, migraines. We come out and not being able to answer phones, not being able to answer emails, not being able to go out, not being able to stay in. These are symptoms that speak of the things that we cannot speak. I'm not saying that everything is a symptom. I mean, sometimes a cigar is just a cigar, and sometimes it's a penis, you know, so from my limited experience. <laughs> so, um, but But actually what we can try to do is create a type of community in which we are gradually able to bring the ghost to the surface, because we push them down they become poltergeists, they break stuff we bring them up, they become holy ghosts and in doing that, we become free of the phantasmic possibility of wholeness and completeness we become less susceptible to those ideological systems, sacred and secular that's why for me theology is the answer to secular promises of wholeness and we can uh, we can actually learn how to concretely make changes in our lives uh, that that are freed from this utopia that we don't want. That's kind of the point that I'm trying to make. Any final questions? Final questions as if you'd asked lots of them. Because you've asked a lot of questions. I've let you speak. I've let you speak for too long. That's my problem. I let people speak too much. But, you know, I'm going to change that. Anybody want to ask a quick question before we finish? As I say, in two days' time, there'll be plenty of time for questions. But any thoughts or comments on that? I mean, I know you talked a little bit in the about using uh, prohibition and obstacle to your advantage in, uh-huh. in desire. Um, is there anything more you can say about, you know, a healthier approach to desire and what that might look yes. like? For example, what that might look like to the characters in the film? Yes, absolutely. So, so you know, the thing I, I just mentioned the other day uh, with Jack and Jill and Snow White, right? You know, I mentioned the so Jack and Jill they've been going out for years but the love is gone there's no desire they're not sleeping together Jack falls for Snow White they have a brief affair Jill discovers it and she says Jack you've got to move out of the house uh, Jack says absolutely our marriage is over years ago and now I can finally be with Snow White because he's been saying to Snow White I want to be with you I just can't because I've got wife and kids right?" Um, and you know, we've already t- dissected this um, but for Jack uh, the object of desire is Snow White, and the object cause of desire is Jill. Because Jill is the prohibition that's stopping him from being with Snow White. Um, but as soon as it's all discovered, like as, as I said the other day, an alien from outer space would go, oh right, they would look at this and go, okay, so Jack and Snow White are going to go out, Jack and Jill are going to separate. Better for Jill, better for Jack, better for everyone. But, of course, that generally doesn't happen. You know, within a week, they're sleeping together like rabbits, and they're uh, going off on honeymoons, right? So why is it? Well, so he thinks the object of desire, but he's desiring her mostly because, because he's an obsessive. He only really desires what's impossible. So he's desiring her because it's impossible. As soon as the relationship is discovered, the object cause of desire disappears, and he's like, oh, my goodness, she's a wingnut. I don't want to be with her. My goodness, that would be a disaster. Snow White's mental. You know. Um, so but he only sees this as soon as the object cause of desire is removed. So now Jill becomes the object of desire and Snow White's the object cause of desire because he's losing his wife. For Jill the, uh, as soon as she discovers the relationship, she suddenly starts fancying Jack again. Not consciously, by the way. This is why I'm never interested in consciousness. Very little's going on up here, because <laughs> uh, <laughs> consciously she thinks he's an asshole, and he is, right? But but unconsciously she's like, oh, I really like him, right? Because why? Uh, for her, as a as a hysteric, she's uh, the the object of de- the object of desire is. Jack and the object cause of desire, the threat taking Jack away is Snow White. And, and as I said before, this is a real example, but we know it all the time. But these people I'm thinking of have done this about six or seven times in their marriage so far, right? So it's, it's not even something that happens that's really crap. It's actually what sustains their marriage. <laughs> it's what allows their marriage to continue. But it's not very healthy, right? Not really good for the kids, not good for them or whatever. So what is the healthier way of doing it? Um In a nutshell, and this sounds like a conservative psychoanalytic view, it's it's not but it's kinda how do you locate the object and the object cause in the same location? Because the problem for these people is they're they're locating the object and the object cause in different spaces. So how do you have a relationship where the struggle and the prohibition is actually hard baked into the relationship itself? So for example, you know, you as a couple have projects that you're not achieving, you have things, but but not in the phantasmic way of only oh, we did this and everything will be great." But projects that that allow for struggle, antagonism, and conflict to exist within the relationship, um, rather than, than it being in three separate locations, being in one in the same location. And this is where in the in the film making love, that's where the problem is. The couple could have had that, but then it became poisoned by the external. Object cause of desire, and that caused the problem. So, so in one sense, I, you want a community that that is able to have struggle. Like, okay, one example. I know, I know, I have to stop. If you do environmental work, for example, because you go, oh, the world is going to be a wonderful place. It's all going to be um, like you know fairies and and rabbits bouncing around and lots of candy floss for everyone, right? You're unhappy because you don't have that world. But then, if you do achieve it, that would be horrific, right? <laughs> It'd be even worse. But if you do environmental stuff because you just like the struggle itself, and you go, maybe the world is over. Maybe we're screwed. Maybe it's too late, right? Like just, like, just like the Norse gods, you worship gods that lose, right? You don't worship gods that win. You worship gods that ultimately lose. You go, why? Because it's not about the ultimate end. It's like the struggle itself. But if, ironically, you embrace Causes not because you're uh, connected to the ultimate goal. One is you probably are going to achieve your goal. That's my point. The point is, like, if you have that attitude, then that's more likely to have a positive effect. But the second thing is you're getting enjoyment out of the act itself. You're not deferring your enjoyment onto the final act. You're getting enjoyment through the not getting what you want. Todd McGowan's book, I'd recommend a book called uh, Enjoying What You Do Not Have. Uh, I think it's enjoying what you do not have. Very, very good book. Capitalism and desires is another very good book, but it talks about this that actually we try we find our enjoyment in not getting. And the per- perfect example of this I mentioned it last night is, is sports. I hate sports because nobody ever wins. You know, they, they, they it goes on forever. But that's the point. The point is when you are into a team, you actually get pleasure from the wins. But you get enjoyment from the losses and from the struggles and for being with your team whenever they're not doing well and knowing the stories of the players. And in fact, there's nothing worse than if your team wins all the time. If your team is winning all the time, the, the pleasure kind of is diminished. So sports is a way of bringing enjoyment and pleasure into the same location. That, that's a very quick answer to the question is how do we do that rather than have pleasure and enjoyment located in different locations.